um, this morning, go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And I want to try to take out a big chunk of Romans today, um, if possible. We'll see how it goes. But I want to look at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. If you're visiting here today or, or wondering what we're doing, um, we've been going through the book of Romans as a church, and, um, and so it's been a, a great journey. And let me just read the heart of the passage that really touches off on uh, the topic um, that we want to kind of discuss today. And let me read before I pray, Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 16, and just pay careful uh, attention to uh, this reading and be thinking about the word election. Be thinking about the word election. And uh, look at verse 10 and let me read it. Paul says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let me pray for a message this morning. Lord, we come before you. You are the supreme God of the universe. And you are also sufficient to save. Um, You're sufficient to guide, enlightened. Um, You are sufficient for all of our needs in our life. And I just pray you would meet us where we're at. Um, That as we deal with a difficult topic, that we might receive it in love. That we might sense your paternal care for us. Um, that we might hear your voice calling us to believe in Jesus, that you might awaken us to faith if we're unbelievers, and as believers, that you might awaken in us us a new depth of gratitude and just wonder at your amazing grace to save us from a world of sin and from a heart of sin. We are broken before you, And yet you came into this world to heal us, and we thank you for that. And just give me the right words and demeanor, and give me the right uh, message that would glorify you and propel us further in our discipleship as we seek to follow Jesus in our life. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we deal with this topic today... I want to just take a moment and say, why are we studying Romans? Why are we doing this? We're taking this long journey through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're investing as a church a lot of time into this teaching. Why? Why Romans? And when we originally started, we set out to say, this is why we're studying Romans. As believers... 
And, and even as people are investigating the gospel, we want to go deep into what the gospel really means. We want to plumb the depths of what Christianity really is, all right? We, we want to rid any kind of sentimental or superficial or shallow understanding of what Christianity is. And we want to go deep into the theology the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, if we're going to believe in this or if we're going to investigate Christianity, let's get to the real story. Let's get to the real depth. Let's really look at the real implications of what the good news of Jesus coming into the world really means. And let's study it and know it and confess it and share it in our homes and share it in the work. So let's, let's go deep. And the, and the promise is, is that if you go deep into the real depths and the real meaning of the good news of Jesus Christ, what is the inevitable outcome is you're going to go high in worship. The more you understand the nuances and the, and the layers and the true depth of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, the more you experience it in Scripture, you're, gonna, you're, just gonna, you're gonna just go high in worship. You're gonna begin to exalt God more. You're gonna have a lively faith in Jesus Christ. You're gonna have a warm, treasuring worship with Him. Your worship will no longer be rooted in some kind of cultural expectation from your family or I just kinda go to church. No, no, no. When you really understand the gospel and your heart is open to it, you just go, hi. Now, I think about those, those old videos of those oil barons, and they had those oil rigs, and they, they plumbed deep into the ground in Oklahoma or Texas and, or around the country, and, and what happens when they finally hit that oil deep down, it just that oil just shoots out of the ground and goes high up into the air, and that's what you get in the gospel is you plumb deep into it, man. It just like, boom. But then the third thing is, is that as you go deep into the gospel, you not only go high in worship, you go far in witness. You become passionate missionaries. You become passionate in evangelism. We looked at the fact that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome to enlist, to enlist them to support his desire to reach Spain with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's trying to get this church fired up about mission so that other people can receive what they had received, which is justification by faith alone. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, can believe in Jesus inwardly and become justified in the presence of a holy God. That's why Romans exist so that the church can really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we come to Romans chapters 8 and 9, we really come to the deepest part of the gospel. We come to the real depth of the gospel. You can't get any deeper into the implications of the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then Romans 8 and 9. And when we come to Romans chapter 9, we come upon an important topic of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me just name it. It is the unconditional election of God of believers. Unconditional election. You heard it spoken right there in that passage. When God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Or verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What is election? Election is the choice 
of some people before the foundation of the world to receive, hear the call of the gospel in an irresistible way so that they will believe. It is God's choice of people before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us into the adoption of his sons. That's election. The word elect means to pull out. It means to pull out that God knew everything that would happen. And out of that mass of humanity fallen before the foundation of the world, he pulled out of sinners those who would receive an irresistible call to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's election. That's predestination. Those are all the things that our churches, I'll be honest with you, they don't like to talk about it very much, right? But this is the inevitable the inevitable topic of God's grace. We saw last week how Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and that foreknowledge is not just God seeing what people would decide before the foundation of the world, but foreknowledge is an intimate setting his love on people in such a way to where there would be a plan in the history of their life to ultimately hear somebody tell them about the gospel, they would hear the call, and then they would respond to Jesus, and they would be justified by faith alone. You see, foreknowledge, predestination, and then they're called, and then they're justified, and then they're glorified. And this, of course, is the foundation of saying nothing can separate a believer from the love of God and Jesus Christ. All things work together for the good of those whom he has called. You see, that is unconditional election, and we come to this topic here. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, because I've thought these thoughts before. Why talk about this? It's so controversial. You know what I mean? I mean, do you just think that? Like, why deal with this? so difficult. It's so, honestly, it's divisive. This topic of election is divisive. And what we do is we come to a topic like this, and we go, you know, we can talk about so many other things that are not as divisive. We could talk about justification by faith alone and be okay for the most part. We can talk about just kind of a broad kind of understanding of grace and be okay for the most part. We can talk about the love of God and we can be okay for the most part. We could talk about how to be great parents or how to be great in marriage or we can talk about, you know, how to, you know, program our iPhones really nicely according to the glory of God and we'll be okay. Can I get an amen? Why would I want to do this? Why do I want to talk about unconditional election today? And why does the Bible tell us to talk about it? Let me give you just a few reasons that will guide us. Number one, we want to talk about unconditional election because it's a biblical confession. We need to confess what the Bible says. Now, Crosspoint, I don't want any of us to become arrogant I don't want any of us to have some kind of feeling of superiority. You are in a church of broken people. Can I get an amen? amen. We are saved by grace. We are, we are no more deserving of God's grace than anybody else. Can I get an amen? We are beggars telling other beggars where to get bread. We are all sinners, and there is no place for arrogance in anybody, especially believers in Jesus Christ who believe in grace. And I have to tell you that as a church, and again, I don't, I don't say this arrogantly. I say this just gratefully. 
This is why we want to go through the Bible systematically, verse by verse, because it forces us to deal with what the Bible teaches. And when you avoid going through the Bible, you avoid the difficult topics, and then people avoid the depth of the gospel, and therefore they avoid the height of worship, and therefore they avoid the global mission that compels us to go and reach the nations for Jesus Christ. We want to do this because the Bible teaches it, and we want to be about confessing what the Bible confesses. Here's a second reason why we should deal with this difficult, despite how difficult it is, for our own spiritual surrender. We are called by the Bible to absolutely surrender to the grace of God, to get in God's presence and say, I'm completely dependent upon your grace. There is nothing in me or around me that can force you to accept me. I have to bow before the throne and say, you are God and I am not, and I'm going to surrender to you, and I am going to test this issue of election in my life. I'm going to test this issue of your call on my life, and I'm going to ask myself, am I really willing to believe in Jesus, or is my faith in Jesus something fake and superficial? Election forces this. Here's a third reason. Global mission. (laughs) Election compels us to go and to find God's people among the nations And to call everybody believing that anybody that comes within our reach is called to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It gives us confidence in missions. It gives us confidence in our witness. It gives us confidence in our evangelism. I would say that doctrines that try to get away from election and unconditional election inevitably water down mission. It's discouraging if it comes down to me or my program, or my thing to kind of manipulate people to believe in Jesus, at some point in time, I'm going to give that up. But if I go out knowing that God has sovereignly moved through the church and through me and through missionaries, and he uses that as a call to his people to believe in Jesus Christ, then ultimately election will lead us to global mission. I think that's part of the reason why Paul talks about it. But let's get to the immediate context. That's the kind of broad reasons. But let's get to why Paul brings up this issue of election in Romans chapter 9. And let's look at verses 1 and following. Follow along with me as we deal with this difficult yet wonderful, wonderful, wonderful doctrine of unconditional election. Paul says this remarkably. I am speaking the truth in Christ... I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, hear the tone. Everybody say tone. Hear the tone of the Apostle Paul. And what is the tone of the Apostle Paul? Heartfelt love for who? His fellow Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews. Paul himself was a Jewish man. 
And Paul himself, by grace, had been saved by Jesus, and he had believed in Jesus, and he had been saved. And as a, as a Pharisee, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as somebody who was from the tribe of Benjamin, Paul has this heart for his nation. Paul has this heart for his Jewish people, and he wants them so desperately to be saved, to come to realize that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, that he says, if I could, and he knows he can't, he knows he can't. But he says, if I could, I have such a heart for them that I myself would be willing to be cursed so that they could be saved and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Now, i got to stop there. got to call you time out here. And I want to tell you, the last thing we want to do at Cross Point Church is create a bunch of armchair Calvinists who don't care about people who don't care about people getting saved, who sit around and theorize about their five points of Calvinism or sit around and theorize about all their doctrines and they have no care for the lost. Let us take a page out of Paul's heart. And his heart is that people would be saved. And the question for you and I is, do we have a heart for our nation? Do we have a heart for the lost? Do we have a heart that people would be saved from fires and from condemnation? Do we have a heart that says, I don't deserve this any more than other people. And if I get this, I want other people to get it. Do we have a heart that people would be made right with God? That's an important question. And that's an important tone here. That's important in the tone. Paul's not coming down. He's not saying, he's not hitting this church and getting all like election and God chooses some and not others. Man, his heart is beating for mission. But in the larger context, you see, he brings up all of the privileges of the Israelites. He brings up eight different blessings that the Israelites, as an ethnic race, the Jewish people had received. The adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, and so forth. And what's he pointing to? He's pointing to a conflict. He's pointing to a question that his fellow Jews have based off what he said from Romans chapter 1 through 8. And their question is this. If Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, if Jesus is the one that is the way to be made right with God, then why are so many Jewish people rejecting him? Why are there more Gentiles accepting Jesus and not as many Israelites? What's going on? These Gentiles are flooding the church. They're believing in Jesus. They're adopting and they're coming into this Old Testament fulfillment and promise of the covenant through Jesus Christ. But Jews are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And if that's the case, then isn't it true that, Paul, if your gospel is what you say it is, and if it's from God, then that would mean that God is not keeping his promise. Because God promised Abraham, and God promised all the Jewish people that they would be saved. He said to Abraham, I am going to make you a covenant people. I'm going to make you my people. Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants and give you a nation. I'm going to give you all of these things. And through you, there's going to be this redemption for your people you see the problem the way the Jewish people were thinking is they were thinking that God's promise of election was about a nation it was about their race that God said Abraham anybody who is physically related to you I will save and so they're looking at this gospel and they're saying, Paul's saying that it's not about Jew or Gentile, it's about your faith in Jesus that makes you right with God. Well, that must mean that God is either inconsistent 
or God has not kept his promise, or that God's character is less than holy that we've been taught. So understand this, that while election is a core doctrine in this chapter, it's not the main topic. The main topic is the character of God. The main topic is, is God truly true and righteous? Is God faithful to his promise? That's why Paul brings up election, because he says all you got to do is think about God's election all throughout the Old Testament, and what you're going to find is that God has been completely consistent. He saved all people the same way in all times. It's by grace that he saved people, not by race. It's by grace that he's made people belong to Abraham, not by their ethnic origin, And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to show the character, the faithfulness of God's character, the consistency of God's plan in how he saves people, and he's going to do a Bible study. How many of y'all like Bible studies? I hope you like Bible studies because we do a lot of that here. Hallelujah. But Paul does a Bible study, and he starts with the patriarchs, and then he goes to Exodus, and then he goes to, to the prophets. And what he does in going through the Old Testament, he says that God has always saved and fulfilled his promise to Abraham the same way, which is by grace through election. And election points to God's faithfulness. Election points to God's unstoppable purpose of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And so we look then at these three categories, the patriarchs, the exodus, and the prophets. From verses 6 through 13, he talks about the patriarchs. And let me talk under this heading. Why is election so important in proving the character of God? Because election points to the fact that God's promise to save is unfailing. It's an unfailing Promise that God has to save. And let's look at this and read it carefully, starting in verse 6. Now, watch this. The word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, Paul is talking to Jewish people, and so he knows that they're familiar with the Old Testament stories. All right, and this story from the patriarchs, and the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from the story of the patriarchs is a famous story about Isaac. And what Paul is saying is, is that God comes to Abraham. Y'all remember, we went through Genesis, right? And God came to Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you some descendants. And Abraham was like, great, that's really great, because me and Sarah can't have babies, and she's been barren, and that's a really great promise. But years passed. And, no, and Sarah was unable to get pregnant. And do you remember what Abraham did in the Old Testament? He went into Hagar, his Egyptian servant, and tried to force God's promise to happen through his flesh, through his works. And who was born of the Egyptian servant, Hagar? Ishmael. And Abraham said, la, 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 
I did it. I made God's promise happen because of my own works, because of my religion, because I'm good enough, because I'm so religious enough. And I heard God's promise, and I made God's promise happen. You see, that's what Abraham was saying. You can read Galatians, and Paul says that's what Abraham was saying. And what God said is Ishmael is not the promised son. Ishmael is not the promised one. Now, why is that important? Because Ishmael ethnically was related to Abraham. Ishmael was ethnically related to the Hebrew Abraham. And yet God said, I'm not choosing Ishmael. And so what did God do? God then came and said to Sarah, hey, Sarah, I know you're like 200 years old. And I know you can't have a baby. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to miraculously bless Abraham so he can come in and sleep with you, which is like, wow, right? He's like 200 years old. And they, they, they sleep and they conceive miraculously the baby Isaac. And Isaac is born, and God says, I choose Isaac because Isaac didn't come because of human works and effort. Isaac didn't come because of your own manipulation of making God's salvation happen. Isaac came strictly by my grace. And guess who I choose to belong to my covenant people? I choose Isaac. I don't choose Ishmael. It's the child of promise, not the child of works. It's, it's the child of grace, not the child of religion. Ishmael is religion. Isaac is grace. Ishmael is the one that God didn't choose. Isaac is the one that God chose. You see, and what Paul is saying to his fellow Jewish people is he's saying, look, man, just because you're physically, ethnically related to Abraham does not mean you're automatically saved because it's not race. It's grace. How relevant is that to human beings, by the way? You want a source of racial reconciliation and unity? Get into election, man. It helps. Because human beings walk around and we're filled with arrogance and pride. We can't help but be racist. We can't help but look to our family or our pedigrees, or a denomination, or a theological emphasis, or the color of our skin, and we can't help but say, I'm better than them. We can't help it. Why? Because we're so sinful. The heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful. And Paul is telling them something that, for the, that the church needs to constantly hear. It's not by race. It's by grace. Isaac is the chosen one of God because God is gracious. Not because Isaac was so special. Not because he was so wonderful. Not because of any of those things. But of course, you see, if I were Jewish, I'd say, well, hang on now. Because it's true that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael to belong to this special covenant of redemption that God gave to Abraham. But you see that that. Abraham slept with an Egyptian servant. So maybe it would be more true if both mom and dad were Hebrew people belonging to the covenant. And if somebody is racially related to mom and dad who are both related to Abraham in that covenant way, well, then that child would then be a true Israelite, a true Jewish person. And so he moves to a second point. In the point of the patriarchs, look at this, verse 10, so great. He says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now stop there. Rebekah belongs to the covenant. Rebekah is not some Egyptian servant like Hagar. Rebekah is not a manipulative like, you know, surrogate mother type gig. Rebekah 
and Isaac are legitimately married. They legitimately get pregnant. And then look what happens. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now what happened? You read Genesis. Rebecca's she conceives twins, two boys in her womb. And what Paul is saying is, is that one was chosen and the other was not. And when was the one chosen and the other not? Before they were born. Before they could do either good or bad. They're not, he doesn't choose. He does not choose Jacob based on works. He chooses Jacob based on grace. He chose Jacob before Jacob was born and could mess his life up. Which, by the way, Jacob ended up doing anyways. Can I get an amen? Read about Jacob. This guy. This guy. Right? And God says, I choose Jacob and not Esau. And here's the more remarkable fact in, in terms of kind of the historical context and the way people thought back in the Old Testament is that Esau came out of the womb first, which made Esau the older brother. And it was always the older one who received the blessing and not the younger. And you remember when they were born and Jacob was holding on to his heel like he would do his whole life. This manipulating guy. And so they're born, and Jacob's holding on to his heel. But Esau is born first, and God chooses not the older one, but the younger one. God chooses the least likely of the two to prove that salvation with him is by grace, an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver, to prove that we can't manipulate God or try to bring something to God and say, well, I've been good enough or I've done these great things. In fact, if you and I were to choose between Jacob and Esau, guess who we would have chosen? Esau every single time. Because if you read about these two boys, you know what Esau was? A stud. He was. He was hairy. All you bearded men, you can say amen. He was athletic. He was good with a bow. I mean, Esau was this man. I mean, he, he comes on the stage of history and he's like, I will hunt. I will gather. I am hairy. I am manly. I am wonderful and strong. He would have been on every cover of Sports Illustrated in our own time. He would have been on Sports Center highlights every single evening. And we would have looked at Esau and said, I love that guy. I love him. Look at him. He's so awesome. And Jacob, what about Jacob? Smooth skin, couldn't hunt. He's always in the kitchen with his mama. He's just this pretty little, cute little boy. Just, he just kind of, you know, just he's dainty. You know what I mean? He's dainty. He's in the kitchen, and we look at him and go, there's nothing impressive about him at all. There's nothing impressive about Jacob at all. I wouldn't choose him. I'd choose Esau. Esau's the man. Esau's the guy. And aren't you glad, sinner saved by grace, that we have a Jacob in the Bible? Jacob reminds all of us, especially those who have the grace to realize that we have no claim on heaven. We have no claim on eternal life. We know that we could not make it to heaven based on ourselves. We're so aware of our weaknesses and our sin. Remember when Paul says, think about
you. Think about what you were when you were called. You weren't noble. You weren't great. You weren't gifted. You were nothing. And God came into your life and he snatched you out from that, that path to hell you were paving. And for those of us who are the younger brother, who are off wildly, either in our prideful religious good works, and we feel so proud because we're so good and moral, or those of us who are secular and irreligious, and we're so proud in our worldliness, and we're out there, and we suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I have no claim on heaven at all. And God God gives us his grace like he gave to Jacob. You see, God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. Election points to the fact that God cannot fail in his promise to save. Election points to the fact that God is truly gracious, that grace means something. It means something to say that grace means it's an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. You say, yeah, but I just, I I don't know, man. I I just really don't like verse 13, man. I just, that verse gets me every time. Verse 13, where it says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the part people really struggle with. What's up with that? Why does it say that God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated? How, how is this put into the mouth of God? And of course, when we think about the word hate, you know what we think of? We think about angry, vitriol. We think about losing temper. We think about hatred. <laughs> I was laughing recently. I was watching the news, which I try not to do too often. Um, I was watching the news. There was these protesters, right? And they're, they're taken to the streets. They're really taken to the streets. And they're holding up these signs, right? And their signs say, we don't believe in hate. And then they're burning down buildings, you know what I mean? <laughs> like like you, you go, huh, I, that's interesting. But anyways, I look at this and I say, what does this mean? And I have to say to you that there's a couple of ways to look at this. First of all, not as an emotional, vitriolic kind of thing, but as a choice. It's as a choice. Or as a priority. Jesus said something like this. If you look at, do a word study on the word hate, you can find passages like this where, where Jesus says this interesting thing from Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Now, I'm pretty sure Jesus is not giving a marriage counseling seminar on how to have a horrible marriage. You know what I mean? I'm I'm pretty sure he's not saying, hey, man, you are now allowed to go home and just really hate your wife. Or I'm pretty sure he's not giving a seminar on how to be a great parent. He's saying, here's how you become a great parent. Just really hate your kids. You know, I'm pretty sure he's not meaning that. In fact, I'm pretty sure he doesn't mean for us to hate even our own life. I think what he means is is that you are to prioritize Jesus above all the important relationships in your life. You are to prioritize God and Jesus more emphatically and as more of a priority than your father or your mother. If you have to choose between God and father, you must choose God. If you have to choose between Jesus and wife, you, you choose Jesus. If you have to choose between Jesus and your children, you choose. Jesus. You see, when we bring that back to Romans chapter 9, God is saying this, I have prioritized Jacob. I have not prioritized Esau. 
I have prioritized Jacob in my covenant promises. I have not prioritized Esau. Now, it can mean reject. And no doubt, God is right in rejecting Esau because as as admirable as Esau was, when you read his story, he is worth condemning. He is worth sending straight to hell. He is worth being separated from God forever and ever. Every single one of us are born... And God can very easily say, I reject your attempts to either be God in my place or to worship other things in my place. I reject your priorities in your life. I reject you in your works. But when he loves us, he prioritizes us with his unconditional love and unconditional election. You say, ah, yeah. Election. Because of election, God's promise to save will happen unfailingly. Because of election and because of this powerful grace that can save somebody like Jacob and somebody like me and somebody like you, his promise to save will happen unfailingly. But one of the big objections to unconditional election is it feels arbitrary. It feels like, is it any, many, mighty, mo? Is God just like any, many, mighty, whoop, I'll do that, you know? Any, many, mighty, mo, duck, duck. You're gone. You know, like, like it feels arbitrary. And I have to say to you that the Bible says that God's choice of election is not arbitrary. It's rooted and it originates in his own wisdom and his own purpose. It's beyond our comprehension. Ephesians 1 says that he does it according to the purpose of his will, to the glorious praise of his grace, or to the praise of his glorious grace, that there is a reason in his own infinite wisdom why he chooses some and he doesn't choose other. And that's beyond our comprehension, but we can trust that God is not just blindly making this decision, that he's rooting it in a plan that is beyond our imagination. Paul is clear about that. So you see that election really points to the fact because of election, God saves unfailingly. All right. Here's the second point. Let's move from the patriarchs to the exodus. And the second heading is this. Because of election, God saves mercifully. God saves mercifully. It says here, starting in verse 14, he moves to the exodus. And watch what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now in these verses, between verses 14 and all the, even going further to verse 24, the word mercy is used five times. And the first time he, he, he talks about his mercy is to Moses. When he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, what is mercy? What is mercy? This is important when it comes to unconditional elections, to know what mercy is. Mercy is a pity for someone who has not earned that pity or who necessarily deserves that pity. 
That's what mercy is. Mercy is coming to someone in deep need, and even though we're unobligated to meet their need, we still do it. God calls it compassion. He sees out of a group of people, some, and he says, on those, I'm going to give them something that they haven't earned, that I don't have to give, and I'm going to give them mercy. God emphasizes this with Moses. I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy assumes that the people who receive it don't deserve it. Now, this is very important. Because what the Bible says about humanity is that human beings are worse than they imagine. You and I, myself, standing in this moment, and you sitting in those chairs in this moment, you have no full realization of how sinful we all are. Does that make sense? I mean, we can come to some place like, yeah, I'm sinful, I'm broken, but we can not fully understand how sinful we are, nor can we fully understand how holy God is. We'll never get to the bottom of the glorious, beautiful holiness of God. And when God talks about mercy, he's talking about something he does not have to do. This emphasizes, of course, that when mercy comes into anybody's life, they are getting far more than they deserved. What human being can say to God, you owe me mercy? An earned mercy is no mercy at all. That's the point. You know, I thought about this as like an illustration. An illustration I would think of is like, let's imagine a rich businesswoman. And she's made millions of dollars. Just a glorious, wonderful business. Got millions of dollars. And she sees that there's, a, there's an inner city filled with children who don't have education And she decides to take $1 million and she says, I'm going to educate 500 of those kids. I'm going to create a school for them. They're going to come in. They're going to get educated. They're going to learn about math and history. And they're going to learn everything they need to learn. And out of those, all those thousands of kids, 500 get educated by her. Now, there's no one who could go to her and say, well, you educated 500. Why didn't you give it all to all thousands? Why, why is there even one left uneducated? And yet you can't say to that somebody who's given something that she doesn't have to give. Even if she had enough money to educate every single child, the fact that she educated 500 out of the thousands of kids, that is a sign of mercy. That is a wonderful mercy, is it not? She's not obligated to educate one person, much less 500 This is what's being emphasized by Paul here. Paul's saying to his fellow Jewish people, since when did you come to God and say that just because you're ethnically related to Abraham, that somehow he's failed you if he doesn't save you? You're saying that God's character is less than holy if God doesn't save every single Jew? That's what you're going to say to God when everything that you as a Jewish people have received has always been by mercy. Don't you remember, fellow Jewish people, don't you remember when God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion? Hmm. What about Pharaoh? Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he also passes over or he hardens whomever he wills. Now, that's an interesting little verse, isn't it? That's a whole interesting story. 
When it says that, I've raised you up, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose. That word raised up means to put up on a platform. And it says that God, in Pharaoh's time of history, put him on the stage of history for world-shaking events. Pharaoh and his father before him, Ramses and his father before him, had enslaved the Hebrew people, had done horrible things. And God said, I'm going to raise you up. And in your time of your life of injustice, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to show you some world-shaking things about my glory. And if you read Exodus chapters 4 through 14, you'll find that 17 times it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes Exodus says that God hardened his heart, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he was unwilling to let the people go. There was one plague and two plagues and three plagues, all the way up to ten plagues. And the whole reason why Pharaoh never let them go, despite all of the carnage that happened to his country, was because God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he was unwilling to let them go. Don't you know that God could have at any moment in time softened Pharaoh's heart and he could have delivered his people after one plague? Or maybe two. But God had his purposes for making sure there were ten plagues, which coincided or was climaxed by that great night of Passover, which so wonderfully prefigures our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We say, well, now, wait a minute. So you're saying that, that God made Pharaoh evil. No, he didn't. Pharaoh was always evil. It's not like Pharaoh was walking around, I'm a good guy. I'm really good. I really love people. I'm going to give people everything they need. I'm going to give them enough wheat. They're going to be great people. I'm going to have a great nation. We're going to be filled with justice. It's going to be wonderful. It's not like, and then God's like, you're going to be evil. He's like, I'm evil. You know, like I'm an evil man. What the passage says is that he was already evil. But here's what God did. He accentuated what was already in Pharaoh's heart. He gave Pharaoh over to his full desire, his full potential. Do you know we're walking in a world of so much restraining grace from God that at the moment he were to remove his restraining grace, this world would crumble so fast. It would, it would, it would go into so much chaos. And don't you remember, students, don't you remember back in Romans 1 when the present day wrath of God is when God gives people over to the desires of their heart and they say, I don't want God. I want to, re- I want to exchange God for an idol. I don't want purity. I want sexual promiscuity. And God says, if that's what you want, I'm going to give you over to it and all the consequences that come to it. I'm going to give you over to your sin. He hardens sinners' hearts so that they get what they want. So when it says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll harden whomever I want, he's not saying I'm going to make some good and I'm going to make some evil. He's saying I'm going to give some people what they don't deserve and I'm going to give everybody else exactly what they deserve. Exactly what they deserve. That's what it means to be hardened by God. And you know, you and I, we come to God and say, don't harden my heart, God. Do you have a cold heart towards God? Are you like Pharaoh, uninterested? You don't have a lively faith in Jesus. You don't have a treasuring faith in Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Come to me, even with your hard hearts, and ask him to soften your hearts. Ask him to give you what you don't deserve. Ask him to make you not get what you really want. And what you really want is a life without God. What you really want is a lack of the supremacy of God and the centrality of God in your life. And you got to ask God, soften my heart. Give me not what I want, but what you will have for me in mercy. Beg him, plead with him, pound on the throne of grace. Come to Jesus and 
and lay hold of his garment and say, heal me, Jesus, of this hard heart. No, no, no. Pharaoh was already evil. Pharaoh was more than happy to be given over to a stubbornness and to a lack of respect and glory to God. And God was just putting it on display for all to see. Hmm. I love verses 19 because there's objections to this. I love Paul. You know, he just gets right to the questions that we all ask. Verse 19, you will say to me then, well, why does he find fault? How can he still find fault? For who can resist his will? <laughs> this is Paul's non-answer answer. Can I, this is great. Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Isn't that a great non-answer answer? He's like, what are you doing asking questions? What are you talking about? God is God and you're not. That's what he's saying to me. That's what he's saying to you. He's saying, you are the clay. He is the potter. He takes the lump. He does what he wills because it all belongs to him anyways. He is God. He really is God. Like, not sentimental God, not pretty fluffy God, not domesticated American God. Like, he's God over all and in all and through all. Can I get an amen? Like, he's God. He can do what he wants. This is great. And we're so grateful because even though he can do what he wants, he's given us grace to believe and mercy I was reading the other day in Job. I've had a Bible reading plan, and I've had to read through Job every single day for the last 40 days. (laughs) And uh, I finally got to chapter 40. God hasn't spoken a lot in the book of Job, but he finally speaks to Job. And here's what God says to Job, because Job's had all these horrible things happen to him. He's gone through terrible suffering. And Job's saying, basically, I don't feel like I deserve all this. I don't feel like I deserve this pain. And God says something very interesting and powerfully in Job 40, verses 8 and 9. God says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Human beings get to this dark place, to really dark, and we've all gotten there. I've gotten there, you've gotten there, we've all gotten there. And the dark place is this, we become so desperate to justify our own existence. We we become so desperate to get through our own suffering that we get to a point to where we're willing to condemn God to justify our existence. That's a dark place. That's a human condition. That's where we get Paul is saying something along those same lines. God is God. You are not. But look, he comes back to mercy. Look at verses 22 and following. And to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now in that verse he's saying that people prepare themselves for destruction. And that God, even in those situations, he he bears with vessels of wrath with great patience. 
He gives everyone plenty of time to try to prove themselves, to prove that they can repent, to prove that they can fix themselves, but they're unwilling to do it. How patient he is with humanity. How patient he is with the global universal fallenness and sickness and wars and injustices and all the rest of it. The selfishness and the, and the self-centeredness, all that. And God is incredibly patient with all the vessels of wrath. Then in verse 23... In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from Gentiles. And what he's saying is, is that those who receive mercy, God has prepared. The, the vessels of wrath, they prepare themselves. No, it doesn't say that God prepared them. It says that they just start prepared. They prepare themselves. But God prepares some as vessels of mercy who will experience the glory of God and see how awesome he is. We don't get all the answers to why God does an unconditional election, why he does it, but we get a hint at it in these verses. Because we ask ourselves, well, now, wait a minute. God is God. It all comes down to his grace. He's infinite. He has no need. He has enough grace to save everybody. And God has three, de- three decisions. God can either save nobody. He could save nobody and totally be right. He doesn't have to save one person. Or God could save everyone, which is completely within his power. Or God could save some but not others. That also is his right. We ask, well, why doesn't he save everybody? Well, then nobody can see the contrast between the glory of his grace and the glory of his righteous judgment and wrath. Why doesn't he save no one? Well, then no one is there standing in glory saying, look at how awesome you are. So why does he save some and not others? Paul is saying that the reason why, and there's only a hint, we can't fully understand it, but the reason why is so that there will be some who will glory in his grace and also glory in his justice, who will stand there and see that God is God and merciful and wonderful. Because of election, God saves unfailingly. Because of election, God saves mercifully. I've got to move on, but let's go to the final point. Because of election, God saves broadly. God saves broadly. God moves from the, or Paul moves from the patriarchs to the exodus and then to the prophets. And why is he doing that? To show this is all in the Bible. It's all in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament has these ideas consistently. God's been consistent to his character, and he's been consistent and fulfilling to his promise And look at what it says. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in in the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And then he quotes Isaiah in verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had left us offspring, had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And Paul is saying two things there. He's saying God has always been, he's always given his grace to a remnant of Abraham's 
physical descendants and pulled them out from the rest and say, I'm going to fulfill my promise to Abraham in a remnant of Israelites, not every Israelite. And then the second thing is he quotes the prophets to show that God had always said he would not only save Jews, but Gentiles. And what that points to is that God's mercy is broad. Everybody say broad. All nations. What does Revelation say? Jesus has purchased for God a people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, a people for his praise and his glory. And that is an encouraging thought. God's mercy extends not to one race, but to all races. God's mercy extends not to one kind of people, but to all kinds of people. God has rich and poor. He's got, he's got black and white, Jews and Gentiles, men and women and children. And he's brought them. He's given them their, his grace so that they can believe in him. And that reminds us as a church that our job is not to figure out who's elect and not. Our job is not. That's God's counsel. That's God's will. It's not us to go around and say, I wonder if he's elect or not. Our job is to go out and say, everybody that comes within my reach, I'm believing God is calling, and therefore I will share the gospel, and I'm going to tell them to believe in Jesus because they're justified by faith alone. Can I get an amen? And we go to all the nations. We don't look at some of those nations and say, they must not be elect. We don't go to some religions and go, they must not be elect. Surely no Muslim is elected to turn from Muslim faith and come to Jesus Christ. Surely no one from Iraq or Syria, surely none of them can believe in Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. God is saying, you as a church go to all the nations, share the gospel, go and preach the gospel and tell people to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what it does. That's what it does. It's broad. God's grace and mercy and wonderful love is broad. Let me finish out the chapter since I've already gone late. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it is, it, it, was, it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What should the doctrine of unconditional election elicit in our hearts? Faith. To ask God for the gift of faith. To say to God, make me willing to believe, and I will. Give me the gift, and I will believe. How do you know if you're elect or not? You believe in Jesus. The moment you believe in Jesus, that's when you can celebrate your election. The moment you believe in Jesus, you can say, this is rooted in the unconditional grace of God. And if you can never believe in Jesus, you go away from the gospel of Jesus, you hear the gospel and you have no interest in God or Jesus, you don't care about it, and for the rest of your life you continue to deny God in your life, then you're not elect. But you must plead with God. You must beg God, give me the gift of faith, because it's by believing in Jesus that you're saved. The message is not changed. Election doesn't mean that we never invite people to believe in Jesus. Election means we, believe, we ask everybody to believe in Jesus. The whole world 
Everybody within my earshot, if you're not a Christian today, believe in Jesus and you too will be saved. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And yet he says in other places, everyone that the Father has given to me will come to me. They will come to me, they will worship me, they will believe in me, and they will be saved and be made right with God. That's what we do. That's who we are. Let unconditional election take you deep into the grace of God. Let it lead you high in worship and let it take you far in your mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.